I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, my friends. Welcome to another episode together. So I may be a little off the mark with the calendar, but I think it's important that we spend a couple of minutes talking about the anniversary of 9-11-2001 and the attacks on America. I'm currently in Dallas. I'm in Dallas, Texas right now. I had to come down here on business. I was here about six months ago and I spent some time in Dealey Plaza and I was shocked to see how small Dealey Plaza really is compared to the way it looks on video and film. I think I talked about that at the time. You know, on film and video, it looks like it's such a giant sprawling place, but when you're actually there, you see that history took place right right in that plaza, and it's not very big at all. Well, 9-11 is another major American event that took place in our country 22 years ago. It's hard to believe that 22 years have gone by since that took place. There are kids that were, were babies that are graduating college. There are thousands of families who lost loved ones. There are untold number of people who have suffered along the way, the first responders and people who lived in the Ground Zero area who had all kinds of health diseases. I think they have said now that the number of people who have died from 9-11 related illnesses from the toxic dust and everything from New York has surpassed the number of people who were killed in New York that day, almost 3,000. Well, as a law enforcement officer who was active duty at the time, one of the things that we did as a as a PBA, as a union, as a group, the, the state of New Jersey's PBA, uh, Policeman, Policeman's Benevolent Association, what they decided to do was set up a base at Ground Zero in the year of 2001. And shortly after the buildings came down and the world was reeling in shock, there was rescue efforts going on. There were thousands of first responders down at Ground Zero looking to try and save some of the thousands of people who were lost, including firefighters, police officers, uh, Port Authority officers, and, and many other people who gave their lives that day trying to help people. Well, in the months after it, when the New Jersey State PBA set up uh, this program, each local, each local police department or uh, union local was allowed to put together a team of people, go to grand, Ground Zero, and you could work for 12 hours at Ground Zero, and you could help do things there to help the people who were doing the work of, of searching for victims and trying to find anyone they could possibly save. Well, I, I signed up for it, and I went there on December 9th, 2001. And I thought I would just, just give you a couple of the memories that I had being a part of that effort. 
it was really a strange time. Uh, we had all observed the, the horror of the attacks. I remember the morning that the attacks took place. I wasn't working that day. I was off that day. And I was in uh, playing with my son on the floor. You know, the TV's not on, but we're just, you know, we're goofing around and we're playing. Father and son playing on the floor. My wife, Miss Kathy's making breakfast. And all of a sudden the phone rings and it's my father-in-law, Ted. And he called and said, uh, told Kathy that a, a small plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. So she says, oh my gosh, my father said a small plane crashed into the World Trade Center. I said, my immediate thought, I think like, like lots of people at the time, was that it was probably like a small Cessna or something like that. Now it's not unheard of that airplanes have crashed into buildings in New York. I think back in the 1940s, uh, a very large plane crashed into um, into one of the big buildings, into the uh, Empire State Building. And the building didn't come down. It wasn't on purpose. It wasn't an attack. I believe the plane lost its way in the fog, didn't have the technology that they had today. So I think most people, when they heard that, at least the people I've spoken to, that a plane crashed into World Trade Center, they were thinking it was a small Cessna, maybe lost in the, in the I don't know, dry, flying through the city area. You know, you see helicopters up there all the time. Maybe it was a tour plane something. Maybe it had engine problems. Who knows? Well, the whole idea that maybe they got lost in a fog or something was impossible because that morning, September 11, 2001, the day dawned across the, the Northeast as crystal clear blue skies, beautiful temperatures, actually a beautiful September day in the Northeast. And I remember turning on the TV and seeing the smoke coming out of the building. And the first thing that caught me was that understanding how big those buildings were, I had seen them in person several times in my life, to see the size of the wound in the building and the flames that were coming out of it, the smoke and flames, made it very, very clear that this didn't appear to be like a little Cessna plane. Uh, it had to be something bigger. As we watched the news reports, the the information started to come in that you know people were reporting no, they saw a jet airliner crash into the building. As a matter of fact, there's very famous video of a group of firemen who were in the area of the World Trade Center and they were they were doing some fireman stuff. They were testing some some stuff in the area. You know, uh, there was gas. I think the video shows them with a meter checking uh, gas coming out of the out of a manhole or something. And while they're standing there, you hear this, this roar of a jet engine and they look up and they had a camera crew with them. They were actually filming a documentary about the New York City uh, Fire Department. And the crew that was with them turned the camera up at this gigantic jetliner as it plunged directly into one of the uh, Trade Center towers creating a huge fireball and explosion that was just it was something out of a out of an action movie kind of a thing it's just you couldn't believe you were actually seeing this and it was it was shocking and i remember watching it watching the the footage because they were showing you footage of it live and then the plane crashing and it wasn't too long after that that as i'm sitting there mesmerized by watching these these scenes worrying about the people you know, the people in the building below the crash scene 
I figured, you know, they might have some problems, but they, they could get out of the building. But people from the crash scene up, my first thoughts were, how are those people going to get out of there? Seeing the flames and the fire and the smoke, you know that it, it filtered through the whole building, you know? And while I was watching that, out of nowhere, you see another jet plane plummet through the sky and crash into the other tower, creating a huge fireball uh, blasted out of the side of the building. And then I remember at that very moment, the thought crystallizing in my head that this was not an accidental thing. This wasn't a pilot having a heart attack. This wasn't anything. This was an attack on the United States of America. And I remember being overwhelmed at that idea that somebody was attacking us like that. And for me personally, I, you know, I, I'm not an architect, uh, but I, I saw that and I, you see a jet plane crash into a building that big with that kind of a fireball. I was surprised the buildings didn't come down right away. And once I realized it was an attack on the World Trade Center, I said that probably was part of their plan. They thought they could hit that building with those jets and knock them over into the, into the city general. And how many thousands and thousands of more people would have been killed? And you know that there's about 50,000 people that work in each one of those buildings. Well, luckily, um, there were people who weren't in the building that should have been in their offices. Unfortunate for many of the people who were at work at their desks. You, you can't even imagine the, the surrealism. If, and there was people who survived. They were calling on the phone saying they were in the area where the plane crashed into the building and they couldn't breathe. There was smoke, there was fire, there was flame, there was people who were killed. To be looking out your window at work and see a jet airliner come right into your building is just, it's almost incomprehensible to think, but that's what happened. And I remember watching that and seeing the, the response of the fire department, New York City Fire Department, Port Authority Police, New York City Police, other first responders racing to the scene to try and do what they could to save people. My impetus was to get up and get in the car and go. But at that point we had heard that you know the, the tunnels were closed, the bridges were closed because so many thousands of people, law enforcement from all over, were trying to stream into the city to try and help. Well, watching that, if any of you remember, maybe some of you were too young to remember the exact uh, events, but shortly thereafter, there was a report of another jet airliner crashing into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. The video of that was not quite as dramatic because you couldn't see the airplane. It was moving so quick along the ground. It was low. I mean, that's only a one-story, two-story building, right? and it flew right in the front door. There was a huge explosion, fireball, unbelievable. And at that moment, I remember my wife, Kathleen, screaming because she realized that this is, this is not just an attack on New York. This is, this is a, a, an attack on our country, all across the country. And the scream that she let out was one of terror and horror. And it shook me. It made me realize the impact of what had just happened, how, how horrific it was. Then, of course, we heard the stories that there were other airplanes that were not responding. And you started to see the magnitude of whatever this was. You know, this was in the days before uh, any of the, the things that we, we argue about and complain about now uh, at the TSA. There was no TSA. 
you got to the airport five minutes before the door closed on the plane. You just ran and got on the plane. Nobody was checking you. Nobody was searching you. They looked at your, your, your pass. That was it. You got on the plane. And you say, what a, a terrible, terrible moment in human history. And then we found out about the battle going on um, over Shanksville, Pennsylvania in another airplane. And we found out that there was heroes like Todd Beamer who was on that plane. And they, they got information that maybe the other airplanes didn't have was that these planes were being crashed into buildings. And Todd Beamer and his uh, other passengers realized that their plane was taken over and they were being hijacked. And you know, back in the day, the whole idea of hijack was if somebody hijacked the plane, you let them hijack the plane. They take you to Cuba or they take you, you know, someplace else, uh, let everybody off the plane and then they, they would disappear into the community, right? Because that's what they were trying to do. But I think the people on the plane rightly realized uh, that other planes had been crashed into buildings, and they were probably going to be the next one that was going to be crashed into buildings. Now, we, we, you can't imagine, I don't think, completely what terror that must have been for the people on the airplane, for, for Todd Beamer and the other men and women that were on that airplane, to realize that they had just done this with three planes and the, the cabin was locked. You couldn't get into it and they were flying the plane and they were turning the plane around. They knew that. Some of the people were making phone calls, calling their family members and their family members were telling them, oh my God, planes are crash, crashing into the World Trade Center, into the Pentagon. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that is when Todd Beamer and the other men on that plane decided to create a plan and to fight back because they had time to think about it. They had time to consider what was going to happen. And they, they mustered their courage. Now, courage doesn't mean that you are not afraid. Courage means you can be scared to death, but you still take action. That's bravery and that's courage. And the men and women on that plane who created that plan to try and take that plane back were courageous, brave heroes. Because that plane, I think we found out later on, was probably scheduled to crash into the Capitol or the White House. Now, while they're, you know, buildings, and that would be tragic, and they, they were, but they were our leadership, and that would have been a symbol around the world that the American leadership had been attacked, the civilians had been attacked, the country had been attacked uh, at will, and nothing could stop it. Would have been even more devastating. But what we saw the actions on that plane, Flight 93, the actions on that plane when those men and women decided to try and take that plane back over again were the first battles in the current war on terrorism. They decided to try and get into that cabin, take over that plane in the face of fear and potential danger and death. Well, we all know how the story turned out. They didn't get into the cockpit enough to the point that they could take over the airplane. And the killers, the terrorists, put the plane down. And thank God they put it down in a field where the loss of life was limited to those on the plane. Imagine if it had come down at a school or in a neighborhood of houses, a gigantic jet plane crashing at 500 miles an hour filled with jet fuel would have been more devastating than anything we could imagine. Uh, 
even worse than what happened in New York because people would have been in their homes, in their schools. There would have been no refuge from the explosion. But they put that plane down and the men fought. They fought to their death and they saved countless numbers of people. They are truly heroes and people to be looked up to and not to be forgotten. You know, it's 22 years. How often have you thought about it on 9-11 every time it comes up and then there's a, there's a special on TV or, uh, you know, they show you the reading of all the names of the people who were killed. And that's a beautiful ceremony. It's a great way to remember. But do you remember the rest of the year? You know, one of the things we talk a lot about here, Chasing Justice, and, is that justice is a lot more than simply um, making arrests or, or feeling we should do the right thing. The reality of justice is that in our country, we have forgotten so many of the lessons of what made us great, what made America a great land of freedom. And by forgetting, by forgetting what happened on 9-11, forgetting the terror that it sent through us, by, by forgetting the messages that we were sent, we weaken ourselves. And that's why it's important that we have these memorials. And if you remember every year, that's good. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. I remember every year I cry, I watch all the specials, I remember the, the stories of what took place. I pay tribute to the men and women who lost their lives that day on the planes, in the buildings, in the Pentagon, everywhere. And I thank God for America. And I pray that America can become once again the greatest place on the face of the earth in spite of the ravages that are coming at it, the evil that is coming at America. So. I wanted to talk about that, and there's a couple of individual things when I went up there that day. Some of the things that struck me was that it was, uh, you know, December 9th, it was cold. It was uh, light, light snow, not snow all over the ground, just like flurries and, and snow here, there, and everywhere. And we went up, I think there was probably about 18 of us from my police department, and we went to the base camp that was set up by the PBA, the New Jersey State PBA set up a base camp. And you reported in there, and they had these quads, you know, like the quads and uh, high-powered golf carts and kind of things. And what you would do is you would go either, either as a single individual on a quad or you'd go in one of the golf quads or whatever they were, bigger, you know, four two-person vehicles. And around the perimeter of what they called the pit, which was where the buildings came down, the buildings were still burning. There was still flame underground. Thousands of people hadn't been recovered. They hadn't found bodies. Uh, there was charred wreckage. You could smell the smell of death in the air. I mean, if you've ever smelled that, you know, for many law enforcement people, you, you, you come across that smell of death. And you could smell it in the air from time to time as the air would move around. And the idea was for us to take these quads and we had uh, there was equipment on them some had shovels some had gloves some had food um, gigantic things of hot coffee and cups and food because a lot of the New York City police officers that were stationed around the perimeter to secure the perimeter of ground zero they 
went from their station houses all over the city and were told, okay, today you're going to the trade center, get in the bus and head over there. And they would work a 12-hour shift and they weren't prepared. They didn't have food. They didn't have anything. They were given a half-hour meal break. Well, the city was shut down in concentric circles from ground zero out a few blocks, out a few blocks, all the way out to Broadway and, and some of the bigger roads. And depending on where you were stationed, you could not get, they didn't have cop cars. They were dropped off for their post. And you couldn't get to get food. So that was one of the things the New Jersey PBA did is we took uh, this food that was donated and we loaded up these quads and we drove around. And if you saw a, a fireman coming out of the out of the pit and they had, you know, hey, here's your gloves. Here's gloves. You know, the PBA bought thousands of pairs of gloves. Gloves were donated. Here's new gloves. Uh, hey, are you cold? Here's something to eat. Hey, do you need a shovel? Here's a shovel. Here's uh, here's coffee. Do you need coffee? Uh, and it was, it was surreal to be there because the wreckage that we all saw on TV was everywhere. To actually be there in the midst of this, and and that's why I'm telling you that you could, you could. There was still smoke coming out of the pit where the buildings were still burning. The things underneath were still burning. The material, the smells that were there. Um, it was. I, I couldn't even, at the time, I couldn't even think of how to describe it to my wife when I came home. What was I going to tell her I just saw and lived through? And I remember some of the unique things that I did see, probably about two blocks from um, Ground Zero. There were these bushes, these very thick, like privet hedgy things in the neighborhood. And when you looked at them, you could see a clear line of debris coming down at an angle through the bushes. There was papers and notes, because you know how many tons of paper got blown out of the windows when the offices exploded. And this paper was angled to the point that you could see that was the blast radius. This is what happened when it blasted, it came out. It didn't just trickle down. When the buildings came down, everything exploded. And to see that frozen in time, and I remember looking at that, and you could see individual notes you could see handwriting of people that you knew were gone. Uh, the poster boards were up, right? They had the poster boards up by the time we got there in December. And there was thousands of people's pictures with pleading quotes on it. Have you seen this man? Have you seen this woman with a name and a phone number? It was hard to grasp, but you felt you were in the middle of it trying to do the right thing. It was, it was funny, I've talked to other people who worked there, and you're kind of caught between the whole idea of, of realizing what a tragic circumstance this was, and also realizing at the same time you were in the middle of history. There, there was that awareness that you knew. This is not something that happens every day. This is, this is going to go down in history, and here you are standing there. And I think that probably came to me the strongest, uh, two particular moments. They, they let us go down into the pit, right? Because down in the pit, you had all this debris, and they had cleared out a lot of the center, you know, area. And they had fire trucks down there, and these gigantic machines with these giant arms would reach into the pile of debris. It looked like the hand of God, this giant hand, and it would pull this huge pile of debris, thousands of pounds of stuff. And they would lay it out on the floor. And all of these fire and police personnel would run out there with little shovels digging through it, looking to find anything of the people that were there, anything, uh, 
any piece of them, anything at all. And once in a while, they would find something. And the, it, the noise was cacophonous because there was probably three or four, if not more, of these giant claw hands pulling stuff out and people working and people welding and cutting and trying to dig through and find people. And when they would find something, they would blow this whistle, uh, this gigantically loud whistle, and the entire pit would come to a standstill. It just stopped. The noise stopped. This cacophonous, deafening noise of machinery stopped. And an ambulance would drive down into the pit, and they would take out a gurney, and whatever they found, a piece of bone, a piece of something, of, a, of one of the people who were lost, and they put it on the gurney, they covered it in a flag, everyone saluted it, and they drove it out of the pit. And as soon as the ambulance left the pit, they would blow the whistle again, and all the activity would start up again, digging, looking, looking, looking. Seeing the faces of... Uh, firemen coming out of the pit that they were working because they let us go down into the pit. Uh, so one of the moments I think that was really the most real for me was being down in the pit, standing there in the mud of ground zero, looking up at the carnage all around me, looking at the bravery of all of the people that were down there trying to find anyone who was still alive searching for their brothers and for civilians who may still be alive down there and seeing their faces and looking all around me, looking up where these, these, these buildings had stood and they were gone. It was nothing but devastation. It was a very, very powerful moment in my life to have seen that, to have actually been there. And I, I, I took a long time to, to you know, look down at my boots and see the mud on my boots. And that's why I, I mentioned that minutia of the, the, the bushes with the papers in them and the mud on my boots because it, it was so personal. The death and destruction was so personal in that these were individuals. These were people who just went to work that day and they were targeted for this terrible evil. Well, that was one of the amazing things that I saw. Another thing... I was riding with uh, another officer, and we were going around the outside of the, the, they had a big fence along the slurry walls. You've probably heard that term, the slurry walls. That was the walls they built to keep the water, keep the river out, and they built the trade centers. And we were riding, <clears throat> riding around looking for people who needed things, and we were going from one area to another, and we saw an older couple and a young man standing up at the fence. We didn't know who they were, so we pulled over to see, hey, are you okay? Is everything all right? And the young man came over to us. Uh, you know, we were dressed in uniform. They knew who we were, we were police. He was a young NYPD officer. And he said, uh, this is my aunt and my uncle. They lost their son in the buildings. Uh, they've never found him, never heard from him again. So obviously he was lost in this. And they want to, uh, they want to drop a wreath down into the pit for him because it was December 9th. It was getting close to Christmas. So we just kind of backed off and watched from a distance. And I'll never forget watching this uh, mother and father pull this wreath out of a bag they had. You were caught up in the emotion of it, as I am now, as I retell the story. And they took it, and the young officer tossed it over the fence, and we watched it twirl in slow motion as it disappeared out of view and down into the pit. And all three of them then hugged them, hugged each other. And you could see they were crying and they were at a terrible loss. 
and so were we. Those are some of the amazing things I remember from that day. We should never, ever forget what was done to us, and we should always strive to make our country as strong and as powerful as it can be so that we can fight evil every single day. We'll be back in a minute. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. In 2008, people could spend an average of 12 seconds on a task without becoming distracted. Five years later, it was only eight seconds. The digital age is narrowing our attention span. Trouble concentrating or recalling information is frustrating, embarrassing, and kills productivity. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Focus and Recall to boost your brain power. And unlike other supplements that don't work, Focus and Recall is not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients to help you immediately sharpen focus, concentrate longer, and strengthen recall. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top, shoot it down. Thousands of five-star reviews proves it works. Supercharge your brain and see the difference. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid of going to the hospital. My doctor tells me nutrition doesn't work. Trust is earned. We are the Energetic Health Institute, and we want to earn your trust. Natural medicine, holistic nutrition, detoxification, fasting, cellular healing, and so much more. Remember, the best way to be free is to be healthy. So stop being a patient and start being a student at energetichealthinstitute.org. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Thank you, my friends, and welcome back. So I want to thank you um, for allowing me to relive some of those moments. And I dedicate them all to the people who lost their lives. Um, it is it is an emotional thing for me. So... Um, you know, I think about it, and I've written about it, and, and I've talked about it before, and every single time I do, it, it catches you right in the throat when you remember those emotions, because it, it is emotion that really, um, that really decides how human beings interact with each other. Now, there's, there's other creatures that can feel emotion. Have you ever had a dog or a cat? that you can tell that they love you, they cuddle you, they snuggle you, they, 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 they get fear fear and you can comfort them. And 
But it's human beings and emotion that really separate us from everything else in the universe. It's, it's absolutely an amazing thing. And, and when I think about those things, I am caught in the emotion of what it felt like to be there, to see it, smell it, stand in it, deal with it, and then think about all of the people who lost someone, you know, who couldn't be there. I was there for them. You know, I was there for the people who were lost and for their families, and I was trying to do what I could. But it makes me think a little bit. You know, where are we today, 22 years later? Are we this very, very powerful nation that other nations are afraid to act against us? Or are we no longer that? Well, I think it's pretty clear to most of us with the rise of China and the rise of Russia and the conflicts around the world and the weakness in the White House. What we have in the White House, we have um, an elderly president who's losing his faculties, whose policies, left-wing policies, are dangerous for America. His policies have weakened us economically, militarily, spiritually, every other way you can possibly have it. His vice president, the person who will step in for him should he uh, not be able to continue, is not what you would say an intellectual genius. Uh, she is also extremely liberal, and her policies would be just as devastating. All of this leads us to the point of, okay, wh wh where are we now? The war on terror seems to be over, right? Well, just a few short years ago, we had Americans killed in Afghanistan on September 11th because of another left-wing policy and people in charge. When we had Hillary Clinton, who was the Secretary of State, and we, we all know what happened when the soldiers were calling for help in Afghanistan on September 11th, and she refused to send anyone, and they were massacred. Then we see, in more recent times, the pullout from Afghanistan of American military. Now, we had been there for many years, and we have learned our lesson that in that part of the world, the Russians had been there for many, many years earlier, and they couldn't win. And we went in, and we were there for many years, and we took out the Taliban. We took out most of the terrorist uh, operations. We slowed them down. We didn't have any major attacks on the United States in our homeland other than lone wolf uh, wannabe killers and terrorists who did some terrible things, but we didn't have a major attack. That was a good thing. We changed our lives. We have the TSA. We have to, old ladies have to take their take their uh, clothes off and, and you have uh, little children being patted down and wanded and you have all of this so that we can you know catch the next terrorist before they blow us up but are we in a position to really worry about that will we have four Atas sneak into the country again and want to learn about flying an airplane but not landing it you know what is it what is it we are looking at well we, we hopefully our intelligence agencies have gotten smarter which is disconcerting because we see what they're concentrating on. They are concentrating on, on uh, weaponizing their, their abilities. They lie to us so that they can go after a political opponent. Are they paying attention? Are they paying attention? Well, in Afghanistan, the withdrawal, uh, there was just a general on, one of the major generals who were there, and he basically said that history will look very, very poorly at that move that Joe Biden did, President Biden. Now, Trump wanted to get out, and he was right to get out. We needed to get out of there. But you don't just take off and leave. We had a military base there, a major military base, Bagram Air Base, that was only 400 miles from China. 
That means we can have a base there to monitor what the Chinese are doing. You know, our enemies, the Chinese, who want to take over the world and take over us. But no, we gave up that base. We pulled out without leaving security forces there. And what happened? We saw the Taliban swing back in, reconstitute itself. We left billions of dollars worth of military gear behind. And we had to pull out so quickly that a terrorist got in and killed 13 more Americans with that terrible bombing as we were, as we were running to leave out of there. All of that was based on policy, and that policy was all wrong-headed. Getting out was a good idea. We can't stay around the world forever, but we may have to keep a presence. We still have bases in Europe after World War II. Why? Because we learned our lesson after World War I and then World War II. We have to have a forward operating area should something else take off. We created NATO so that if powers start to develop again, like they always do, how many times have we talked about it here? If powers develop again where it looks like the, the winds of war are, are growing, as they are today, uh, we are prepared to respond. But the difference is we have to have power, physical, mental, and spiritual power to be prepared to fight back our enemies. With President Biden and our uh, our friends on the left and their mis misconstrued understandings of human nature, misconstrued understandings of what creates a safe nation, a profitable nation, a place of plenty for everyone, since they don't understand that, they can't deliver that. And that has created weakness. There's no other way to look at it. It has created weakness. We, we've given up our position as as creating our own energy, energy that makes everything happen in our country. Everything, everything about us relies on energy, and we've given that up. We're now a, a buyer of energy from the very same people that we had to get away from. The Middle East, we had to get away from that so that we can't be drawn into wars. Well, we're right back to buying from them, and we've lost our position as the supplier. To be the controller of energy is a power position, and we gave that up. So when I think about that, I say, okay, what lessons can we draw from 9-11 these many 22 years later? We weren't prepared for this to happen. We thought we were insulated from this. We had people get into our country, stay in our country illegally, learn from us, sneak under the radar, and then they attacked us and, and hurt us and killed many of our citizens, wounded us terribly. Well, we've created Homeland Security. We've created TSA. We've uh, connected the dots between the FBI and CIA, supposedly. And we all our intelligence agencies work together to prevent these things. We work with our allies to prevent these things. And I could tell you, uh, many, many events were prevented. Maybe not 9-11 size events, but big events were prevented. And that's a good thing. So that was that was a positive that came out of it. You know, these people can't just come here. They can't just get on a plane, get off the plane, and, and go live as a, as a quiet uh, uh, band of potential killers until they're activated. Well, that was until Joe Biden opened the borders. The borders are wide open. We have no borders. See, when they come out and say, our borders are safer than they've ever been, we're solving the problem. What they mean is, what they thought keeping people out was bad, so therefore letting everybody in means you're actually securing the border. 
You know, they're coming in, they're turning themselves in when they cross the border by the millions. And then we're bringing them into the country and acclimating them and giving them things so they can live amongst us. Say what you will about immigration. We need immigration. We absolutely need immigration. It's a very important part of, of who we are as a nation. But it has to be controlled, and we have to make sure we bring in people that are going to help us be a better nation. We can't just open the doors and let everyone flood in. Because you know who's flooding in with them? Thousands, thousands of people on the terrorist watch list from just about every country around the world is coming here. So if we had 16 highly motivated individuals cause the 9-11 catastrophe, tragedy, an attack on our nation, what would 75,000 people potentially be able to do? If they're in sleeper cells, why? I mean, they come here. Okay, so maybe they're on the watch list, and that's because they they maybe said something bad in the past, and that's why they were put on the watch list. Well, is that all of them? All seventy-five thousand said something stupid accidentally, or did something, or a part of a group, and they're not that anyway anymore. What if there are a hundred who really want to hurt us? What if there are a thousand who really want to hurt us? What if there are ten thousand? who really want to hurt us. Is that potential greater today than it was a couple of years ago? It's clear. It is much greater today that there could be sleeper cells all over this country, coordinating, waiting for a day of attack. And I sure hope there isn't. I hope that that's a a nightmare scenario that never comes through. But as we show weakness around the world, as we leave Afghanistan in, in ruin for our, for our country, we leave them with billions of dollars worth of weapons that they're now selling to other groups around the world. Right Now they've got, they got money, billions of dollars. As we do that, if the world decides to heat up again, when they feel there's a moment that they can heat up again and do bad things, they probably will. Because, right, what we've talked about, human nature. Evil does not see weakness as something to be concerned. Oh, they're they're weak, they're down, they're they're not doing what they used to do, so let's leave them alone. It's not how weak, that's not how evil works. Evil sees advantage in weakness and takes advantage. And I, I sure hope and I pray that that never does, that that never happens. Maybe this moment in time will have passed us. And maybe we can finger a way around it. Maybe there aren't groups that want to come and get us. Maybe, maybe the 75 or 85,000 people on the terror watch list who snuck into the country, maybe they don't mean us any harm. The problem is, what if they do? What if they do and they do something that attacks you or your family or your children? Who are you going to blame then? Who are you going to talk to then? And I'm not talking to my audience here. I know who you are. You're good, decent Americans. You believe in America. You believe in truth, justice, the rule of law, decency, uh, compassion for people around the world. Uh, That's who you are. I know who you are. It's the other Americans, the other 50% of us, who will vote to destroy our country, to get rid of our constitution, to redo it, to, to shut down free speech, to shut down our other rights, in the name of some socialist revolution to make things fairer and better and and all the other nonsense that they come up with. 
so that's what I you know, that's that's really what I wanted to cover on 9/11 is the the historical aspect of it and the potential for for things like that in the future. Now, along those lines, um, President Biden has now come up with a plan where he was going to trade uh, hostages. American hostages are held in Iran, and we have Iranian citizens under arrest here for doing whatever they did. And Joe Biden and his State Department have worked out a deal with Iran where they will exchange uh, five prisoners each, and the Iranians will get access to $6 billion that are being held in banks because they've been frozen because of their terrorist behaviors. So this is a win, right? This is a win-win. Now, getting Americans back is very good. Giving them $6 billion and releasing five terrorists back to them, I don't know that that's such a good idea. You know, maybe there's other ways we could do that. Maybe a President Joe would come up with a different way uh, that wouldn't be so weak. Now, of course, there's always sacrifice to anything like that. And you say, well, of course, Lieutenant Joe, if you're president, you you made a, a tough line against them. It's not you who'd get hurt. You know, that's not a reason not to do the right thing. When I was 18 years old, if there had been a draft, I would have went. Right? I would have went if there was a draft. If there was a war, I would go. If there was a war going on and my country needed it, my sons would have gone. My daughter would have gone. I wouldn't have liked it. I wouldn't have wanted it to happen. But I would have told them they have to do what they have to do to protect their country. Every generation never knows when the call is going to come. And they'd have to be prepared for that. And we have to be prepared for it. We can't be weak because we're afraid of what being strong means. So he traded these, he's trading for our prisoners, which is good. How about we say, you have our prisoners and you will have no Navy on Tuesday morning if you do not release all those prisoners and then wipe out their Navy. And if they still don't let them go or they hurt them, then wipe out their air facilities. And if they still don't let them go or they hurt them, wipe out their oil production. Maybe that's the thing to do to terrorists, to evil bullies, right? We have the technology now. We can, we can do a lot of this standoff and other bullies would watch and see it, right? I don't want to get people killed, especially Americans. But at the same time, if you don't project power, you project weakness. And if you're weak, people take advantage of you. Just my thoughts on the matter. All right, so there's a fella out there. Let's, let's, let's change things up a little bit here. Let's change it up a little bit. There's still other justice things to talk about. There's a man named Scott Smith. Scott Smith is from Northern Virginia. Now, if you remember uh, a year or so ago when um, Loudoun County and all these other counties in Northern Virginia were, were going very, very woke, going very, very left, uh, we remember the FBI was going to investigate parents who dared to come in and stand up and say, I get, I should get to know what's going on with my kids. No, you don't. You don't know. We know better than you, right? And they had the FBI come after people. Well, uh, Scott Smith was arrested at a school board meeting because some woman uh, got into an argument with his wife. This is how it's been reported. He was there, didn't know his wife was there, didn't know she came in the auditorium. And this woman starts arguing with his wife. Um, because Scott Smith and his wife were there because their daughter had been sexually assaulted by a transgender boy. He was a, a, a transgen- He was a boy transgender that wore a skirt and declared himself to be a girl, identified as a female. And 
this boy sexually assaulted their daughter in the bathroom. And he was very upset about it because the school district tried to cover this up because they didn't want it to look bad for the transgender community. Now, that's understandable. You know, you, you don't want a, a, a fragile community uh, to be further marginalized. Uh, but I don't think that this kid who was uh, a boy declaring himself to be a girl and then sexually assaults another female in the bathroom, I don't think he's a representative of the transgender community. I think he is an evil person who took advantage. Well, they, 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 they silenced the investigation. They didn't report it properly. And they moved the boy to another school where he assaulted another young lady. So Mr. Smith was there to speak out. His wife was there, and there was a woman there who didn't believe them. They were lying and started an argument with his wife. He got in an argument with the woman standing up for his wife. And the police apparently heard the argument and told them from the quote I read, you should be kind to each other, knock it off. And as Mr. Smith was walking away, the woman said, I'll ruin you on Facebook. See, because that's, that's the cancel. That's the cancel threat. You're talking against this community. I will ruin you. You'll lose your job because you talked against this community. When he was just there standing up for his daughter, right? And a, and a rapist who attacked his daughter, he was upset with that. Um, so when he, when he walked away, he turned around and said something nasty to her. And then, of course, the police jumped on him, arrested him, and he was convicted of disorderly conduct for causing a disturbance at the meeting. Now, you can think maybe he shouldn't have argued with her. Maybe she shouldn't have said something to him. Maybe she should have kept her mouth shut and he kept her opinion to herself, let him have his speech, let him say what he wanted to the school board, let the school board respond. Maybe you think all of that was correct. But he was convicted. Well, Governor Yunkin um, pardoned him. And I, I thought it was interesting when he said, I felt I had to accept this pardon because I think he wanted to not accept the pardon because he wanted to fight more, fight about it because it's not right what happened. But he decided that he had to accept the pardon because he had to speak out about what happened here. And I think that in itself is brave. And could you imagine if your daughter was sexually assaulted and the school didn't do anything about it or they tried to cover it up because the person who did it was not someone they wanted to have in trouble. First of all, that doesn't help the daughter. That doesn't help the entire community. And it doesn't help the transgender community to allow a thing like that to go on and not point out that it was the wrong thing that happened, not the community. Like I said, I don't think that kid is representative of that community. But it all gets conflated together when they try to hide it as though it was. And I think that was wrong. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, as that goes forward. So he, he, he accepted the pardon. We're seeing more and more people are, are trying to take back. You know, maybe there is there. Do you feel, do you see it out there in the world? Do you see a, a growing trend of people maybe coming back from the ledges of this left-wing lunacy that we see going on out there? Do you think people are thinking a little bit? You know, I think the, um, the, the migration problem that we're having with these illegal migrants who are coming here and being placed all over the country. That is causing tension in places that they didn't expect. Um, you know, the mayor of New York now, who has an unbelievable crime problem, and he's trying to figure this out. And, you know, they are a sanctuary city. Now, the idea of a sanctuary city is that you could come here. You're here illegal, but we know you want to come, and you're good people. We want you to come, so you can come here until they come. And, and they're saying, well, they're not actually coming. They're being sent there. Well, why should Texas, New Mexico, 
Arizona, California. Why should these border towns be overwhelmed with people that all these sanctuary cities say, we want them here? So what those governors are doing, mayors, is they're shipping them to those places in this big controversy, putting people on a bus. Well, they have them sign a waiver. Would you like to go to New York? We'll send you there on a bus. Would you like to go to Washington? We'll send you on a bus. Would you like to go to Chicago? We'll send you there on a bus. Because they, they, they want this better life. And the governors are saying, why should I have 3 million? So New York City has 30,000. 30,000 of these migrants. And it's crippling their budget. It's crippling their ability to provide schooling. Uh, all the school children in New York have to be uh, immunized with all of the childhood uh, immunizations, except the newcomers don't have to be. They have 30 days to start, get into the program, maybe do it or not. So we have a two-tier justice system for people who are uh, politically favored and those who are not. And now we have a two-tiered health care system. Right? We don't want to draw attention to that community, so we're not going to make them have to do it because they don't have any of those things. And we're seeing the rise of diseases, not because they're bad people, but because they come from countries that don't immunize. And now they're spreading those diseases across the country. And that's unfortunate because now American children who wouldn't have been uh, infected are now going to be infected. If you're going to let all these children in, keep them in one place, get them all immunized so that they don't pass disease around. It's good for them and it's good for everybody else. But this is what we're seeing. So one, so one of the things the mayor of New York is trying to do is he's trying to save his budget. How do, I, how do I pay for all this? He has now sent out a message to police, fire, first aid, and everyone and said, you have to justify your overtime. We don't have overtime money anymore. So in a city that is overrun with crime, they're now telling the cops you can't have overtime. And you say, okay, so no overtime. The cops just will be more selective and go after real criminals, and they won't worry about the, the quality of life stuff. You'll just have to live in a crappy city. We won't go after that. We'll just go after the real serious stuff. Unfortunately, because of the defund the police movement and the anti-police movement that rages across the country, New York has lost thousands of police officers, and there are not thousands of people to replace them. People don't want to be a police officer anymore. They say, why would I do this? You know, I talk to these young people that used to clamor to be a police officer because it's a calling, you know, being a police law enforcement, fire, fire officer, you know, a, a first responder is a calling in people's lives. The military, they want to do the right thing. Well, now they're seeing that, you know, doing the right thing can mean uh, I get indicted, I go to prison, I get locked up for doing my job. Now, that doesn't mean uh, if they do something purposely illegal and wrong, abuse their power, they shouldn't be held to account. They should. What it means, though, is when you're doing your job, law enforcement, how many thousands of times have I said this and had to say it? The problem comes up when you're trying to enforce law on people who don't want to be held accountable and they want to fight with you. They want to shoot at you. They want to stab you. They want to run away from you. And how are you supposed to handle that? How are you supposed to enforce the law when that is the situation? And that's part of the problem. So he doesn't have enough officers to begin with. And now he wants to cut back on the overtime. So basically, you're going to see crime go back up again even higher than it's been already. So I'm trying to um, I'm trying to, to to cover the last couple of minutes we have here with some different things and 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 bring some stuff up. And I'm looking here. Um, there was a a recent cold case. I love cold cases being solved. I think it is uh, one of the most amazing things for justice that we can ever come across. 
So recently in Fairfax County in Virginia, uh, there was a 27-year-old woman who was murdered back in 1994. And I remember her name. We should say her name, Robin Lawrence, uh, 27 years old, uh, and she was murdered. And her case went cold. You know, when we think about um, this was back in 1994, how many years ago that was, what, uh, quite a bit. That we didn't have the DNA we have now. We didn't have the techniques we have now. We, we've come leaps and bounds forward in being able to solve cold cases because of the forensic evidence we can gather. Well, the detectives there uh, who were, who never, and I can tell you, I've talked to, to lots and lots of detectives who have worked cold cases, and they never forget about the case that isn't solved. You know, I worked thousands of cases. I arrested and prosecuted with the prosecutor's office many, 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 many very, very bad people who are in prison. You know, one of the things we call them is uh, career enders. In law enforcement, a career ender is a person that you arrest, they're charged, they're tried, they go to prison, and they are in prison long after you retire. That's a career ender. Well, there's lots of them that I prosecuted, and they all got their just desserts. But for people who didn't uh, be held to account, like um, someone gets murdered and you don't have a suspect to arrest, that can linger with you forever. So these, these cops across the country who worked cases that were never solved, they never forget about them. They live with them in their lives. So when a cold case is solved, it is a wonderful, like the Gilgo Beach murders, how awesome that that was done. Uh, what a great job they did. But here in Fairfax County, what they did is they had a DNA profile from the victim, but they never had the proper um, ability to match it up to anybody until recently, which we're seeing over and over and over again, is they're going to the uh, to these commercial banks where you can get familial DNA. You know, give your, give your blood and find out who your family really is. Well... They can go to that batch and they can find a match to name a family where the killer came from. And then with good investigative techniques, they can pinpoint the killer. And they just did that. And they arrested the killer of Robin Lawrence. Uh, she was murdered in 94. And now that killer has confessed to the murder. So that's a cold case. That's a win for justice. That's a win for the community. That's a win for Robin Lawrence. Though she tragically lost her life, it's a win for her family, and it's a win for those detectives who dedicated themselves to bringing justice to people. So I think we've done the whirlwind here today, my friends. Let's, uh, let's think about our future. Let's look to be a better people. Let's be strong. Your vote matters. Think about what's important to your family and your future and your nation. Remember, don't be a part of the problem. Be a part of the solution. We'll catch you down the road.